All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedle. Today, I am joined by Jessica Hooten-Wilson. I have not spoken with Jessica since she came on our vernacular podcast a long time ago to talk with my wife and I about Flannery O'Connor's various short stories. Uh, but what I, what I really appreciate about Jessica is that she has a talent for opening the eyes of the, uh, the unenlightened uh, on, on topics of literature and helping them see literature in a new way, which uh, is, I guess, understandable given that she has opted for a career in doing just that. She teaches literature and writes books, uh, opening up literature to uh, people at a popular level. And I'm really, really delighted to have her on again to talk about her most recent book called The Scandal of Holiness. So Jessica, welcome to Creedle. Yeah, thanks, Zach, for having me back. Yeah, I'm really excited. Let me give uh, uh, my my uh, listeners just a little bit of a, an idea of who you are and where you come from and what your sort of broader project is. And then we can dive more into this uh, amazing little book that I'm holding in my hands here. Um, so Jessica is Louise Cowan, scholar in residence at the University of Dallas. She is the author of three books. The first is Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor, and The Brothers Karamazov, which, re- which received a 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year in Arts and Culture Award. In 2019, she received the, uh, probably mispronouncing this, Jessica, but the Hyatt Prize yes. for, mm-hmm. for Humanities from the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture. And she is also co-editor of the volume Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West, a collection of essays on the legacy of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. In 2022, she published The Scandal of Holiness, uh, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. That's what we're going to talk about. And Learning the Good Life from the Great Hearts and Minds that Came Before. Is that last one out yet, Jessica? Or is that? Yes, okay. it came out in May. And it's a reader that I edited. So it's not a book that I wrote this year. So it's a little bit different. Um, but you can still grab that Learning the Good Life yeah. Wisdom from the Great Hearts and Minds that Came Before. Um, well, as I mentioned, Jessica, your whole, your whole project is about sort of opening the literary world uh, to people at a popular level. People like me who have not per- received PhDs in literature. Um, so tell me more about that sort of project. Maybe we can back up all the way. Tell me where and when you first fell in love with literature. I know you tell the stories a little bit uh, in this book here, but tell me more about that. Yeah, so I grew up in a household that definitely was surrounded by books. I mean, my dad would spend part of their meager grocery bill on books. So if they ran out of food, that was fine, but they had to have a book every month uh, delivered to their house. So I just grew up with reading being part of things, and I fell in love with books very early on. I wrote my first book when I was four or five years old. And uh, I even like won this contest from the local library to like write your own story, you know, and they would publish it in the library. And I thought like, this is what I want to (laughs) do. So, you know, I wanted to read and write, and this is the way that my imagination is best cultivated. And in the book, I don't make any claims that it's the only way to have an imagination cultivated towards holiness. It's the way that I understand the best. And I find that it's one of the lost resources in this current culture, which is less literary. Um, But for me, it's always about what are the ways to cultivate the imagination that lead us towards beauty, that move us towards truth, that give us resources for being good. That is beautiful. And uh, again, that story comes through, at least in parts uh, in the book here. Uh, when you told that story about winning a, a competition at the local library that sort of ignited your desire to write, it made me think uh, about the flip side of that coin that um, sometimes children try something that they would that they are good at, at an early age, but they don't win the prize, they don't, you know, they don't get selected. And so they think, oh, I'm not good at that. And it might take them a long time, maybe forever 
before they they pick up the craft again and try again. So I'm, I'm glad it worked out in your case. I would, I would be uh, I'd be frustrated if the librarian had not selected your essay and then it discouraged you for years years afterward, <laughs> and and you went and took up astrophysics or something like that. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is um, I actually tell some of these stories when I do creative writing because. As a college student, I paid for, I won all these scholarships for creative writing through college, but then you compete outside of the college pool into like the adult world. I mean, if you think about it, most of your life is competing within your same peer group. And then all of a sudden you're 22 and it's like your creative writing is competing against people who've been practicing for 40 years. Right. Yeah. Writing. And suddenly that, so I think that was disheartening, but in a positive way, in a way that made me reach higher and Um, so even the discouragements I think are, were really good for me trying to figure out what it meant to be a a writer and a reader. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, in the, in the introduction, and you talked about it a little bit in, in uh, your sort of formative experience with literature, but in, in the introduction to your book, you talk about this importance of forming an imagination through reading Mm -hmm. and you quote several authors on this. And then you cite some, from personal examples, sort of how even Tom Sawyer shaped your, shaped your view of the world. But can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like how, how is it that imagination is so important to forming uh, or, or how, how is it that literature is so important to forming our imagination? And then how is it that imagination is so important to forming our view of the world around us? Yeah, you know, I've even read more on this after the book that is just reaffirming the things that I say in the opening chapters. For hundreds of years, people understood this to be the case that you made certain decisions in your life, you behaved in certain way, most of it not on a cognitive level, right? And so we're not walking around, we don't think about every single decision that we make. Most of the decisions that we're making are formed by the desires, which are formed by our memories. So whatever we have in the storehouse within us that helps us see and imagine the world and know the world, we are then responding from that out of loving certain things or hating certain things. And then choosing, you know, a lot of times without even getting into the intellectual, um, understand, like understanding the questions that, you know, in front of us, if that makes sense. Um, and so our imagination actually has more effect on our will than we realize most of the time. And so I wanted to dig into, okay, how could we fill that storehouse? What does it look like to have our imagination change our desires so that we're constantly drawn toward the good and we're actually repulsed by things that would be bad for us rather than trying this um, kind of didactic approach of like listing out the good and bad things in the world and then assuming that most people just respond like Spock to like that is bad and that is good you know which is not how most of us act yeah no certainly not uh on page two of your introduction uh i underlined this passage where you just say that for Lewis, C.S. Lewis, God first draws us to himself via our imagination, our way of seeing ourselves in the world. And then you go on to say the climax of, his, of Lewis's conversion was itself rather dull. And then he goes on to say, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Um, I, I was thinking here of more in this idea of, you know, God draws us to himself via our imagination. And I was thinking about architecture. Um, I, I think I'm just a pretty visual person and I like architecture. So to me, by, by way of analogy, I can understand your points about literature if I think about architecture. But if I'm growing up in the Soviet Union, for example, where all of the architecture is just this like brutalist, statist, gray grunge stuff that looks like factories, and many of them are factories because in fact, the most valued thing is, um, is factory production. 
uh, it's going to be a whole lot harder for me to believe there is a God than if I'm walking through, say, the streets of Oxford, my alma mater, where um, where there are just all of these towering steeples everywhere. The Bodleian Library um, is absolutely stunning. And when you go inside, all of the, the places of the books uh, also tell you there's something here, there's something more here than what meets the eye. Um, and I think, so, so using that architecture analogy, I can see how just imagination and, and reaching beyond ourselves and beyond the sort of brutalist, maybe the, 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 the crudest instincts of ourselves that lend to that sort of brutalist architecture, we can see there's something beautiful here. And in the same way I think, tell me if I'm wrong, in the same way I think understanding these stories of literature tell, tells us there's so much more here. Like the literature stories that, you're, that you are pointing us to in this book are not, uh, they're not terribly simple stories. They're not, um, they're also not, um, I don't know what the exact term would be, but they're not, they're not crudely simple, I suppose. You know, there's, there's layers of complexity here. This isn't a simple uh, Marvel mo- movie in written form. Um, these stories have depth and have nuance and have complexity uh, that reveal themselves only as, you know, an onion reveals its many layers when you peel it back. And I think that is, uh, that is a key part of how they, they foster imagination. But, but tell me, you know, if you agree or what I'm missing or what you would add. No, that's fantastic, Zach. Well, you've brought up a lot of different points. And so um, when I think about architecture, there is a way that we approach literature in which it attunes our senses to what is happening, that something higher is going on here. You know, like you mentioned, the spirals, you know, the the way that the Gothic spires lift your eyes upward. Literature can also train your senses, right? It trains you to pay attention to different things than you would formerly notice. I mean, that's a lot of what poetry does, but also what great stories do is is they train your eyes um, in how to see the world. And that's what Lewis discovered when he was reading. But it also tapped into something in which he realized he had a soul and he couldn't even explain it. It wasn't, again, it wasn't cognitive yet, but it was this perception of I am made for something greater. I'm more than just atoms. I am more than mechanisms. I am more than chemicals. Um, there's something in me that this literature was also sparking and, and not only just showing him how to see the world, but showing him the world that he was meant for. Right. Um, and more of a purpose in addition to, uh, the faculty of attention, both of those things are kind of combined in, in what literature can do for you. I like that point about under, coming to an understanding of the soul without even being able to define it, or perhaps even without even fully recognizing that you've come to that understanding. And it makes me wonder if, you know, one of the ways in which this this um, literature, this sort of literary formation happens, is at the at the preconscious or subconscious level, just through through the longing of our hearts being um, being given voice in literature. Yes. We identify with these things that we that we truly want and desire, even if we don't. We we couldn't we couldn't make a list of those things on paper in front of us, right? But then they end up they end up being sort of the pre formed notions that then give rise to our our actions later and then of course which you know in following the classics which 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 then would um give rise to our habits and eventually to our character yeah absolutely i mean it's the poetic knowledge is how it's often talked about right like what has been sparked within you what has your emotions responded to where do you have this context of meaning making before you even intellectually ascertain the truth of the thing Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that's such a that's such a powerful idea to think about. And then it challenges me to think, 
what have I allowed to form my own poetic knowledge that's not good? Because mm-hmm. there are certainly, I'm, I'm, there, are, there are plenty of like Netflix shows that I should not mm-hmm. have binged or maybe have binged, you know, one time too many. Uh, and, and there are plenty of books that I've spent time on that are not classics mm-hmm. and probably didn't really form a, the, that sort of poetic knowledge in the right way. And so it, mm-hmm. it is, you know, just as literature holds great promise, I think it's true that bad literature and bad storytelling holds great peril for forming that poetic knowledge. What do you think? Yeah, well, I, I think in terms of a diet is probably the easiest analogy because most people hear this and they'll start hearing this conversation and think that is so elitist because if they are perceiving themselves as enjoying or having pleasure with certain Netflix shows, which I, you know, I watch, people always ask me if I watch things. Yes, I watch things. I probably don't watch as much as the average person. Um, I mean, I know I don't. I usually only watch something on weekends with my husband, but I do watch things. And I think it's about tastes. So if you have only been fed cotton candy your whole life, that's all you're going to ever want. But what is that going to do to you? So you think about it in terms of your soul, if your entire diet is primarily cotton candy, like the Netflix variety, then you probably have a really fat malnourished soul. <laughs> like That's the reality. And then you're only going to want those things. And so if you try to eat something as delicious as the Iliad and it's, you know, steak, not only are you not going to have the muscles to be able to chew it, you're not going to have the palate to be able to savor it. Um, it might even make you gag because you just you're not used to it. So I do think you have to kind of build up this palette. You have to build this ability. But once you do, you'll recognize and you'll want certain things more. You'll want healthier um, cultural diet than than some of the things that, you know, are occasional desserts or occasionally you eat candy or, you know, like occasionally have that cocktail. Um, but it's not the mainstay of, of your cultural diet. I love that analogy, and I can even see that reflected in my own life, uh, not in literature, but in film. And I don't pretend to be, um, I, don't, I don't pretend to be some sort of film critic, but I've been working on trying to have a more refined sense of film because I really do like film. So several years ago, my wife and I said to each other, we're going to try to get, like, get into film um, mm. and, and sort of look at it as, as students of the genre and appreciate it as an art form not, rather than simply entertainment. And so we've, we've tried to do this. You know, we, we've watched uh, many more um, films that are lesser known in a popular sense, but I think are just you know, higher art and really have enjoyed doing that and diving in. And then what I found, Jessica, is there are exceptions, but I found that like when I, when I go to watch like a blockbuster, mm-hmm. I'm just like, this is not really doing it for me. And the, the latest example is my wife and I tried watching the latest James Bond film the other night. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, I don't know, it just was not fulfilling at all. I, it was... And so we, we ended up just turning it off um, and watched a much better movie the next night, you know. Um, and so, again, I'm not saying that I've arrived, but I do see some some patterns of this happening in my own life where I just now I want the I want the good stuff now that I've had some of the good stuff. Well, and if you think about it in terms of literature that moves us to God, you see how important this is, because if most of our culture is satisfied with bad theology in poorly written stories that do not ignite our hearts towards beauty, that do not tell the truth about human beings and do not really showcase goodness, like holiness, um, but more of like a desensitized, like, um, you know, I'm trying to think of the the language that I want here. Um, I, all I can think of is pornographic, and that's not what I meant. Sentimentalized. Uh, Flannery used sentimental and pornography to be the same thing. So they always get like... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm conflated in my mind. But if it's like this over sentimentalized literature and you think that's helping your faith, then what kind of faith would you have? Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if you read the kind of literature that instead shows you what it what beauty is and draws out for you this desire to to move towards God and to know him more, um, that kind of literature, that kind of taste, that kind of palate would just do so much for how people actually live in the world, right? The things that they desire after the book is closed. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, and by the way, I mean, I remember Flannery using those words more or less interchangeably. And like, there's a lot to that, right? Because the the um, the problem with pornography even is not is not that it shows the sexual act, but that it shows the sexual act like completely denuded of everything that a sexual act should have. And so it is just like appealing to the basest parts of us and not to those parts of us that desire the true, the good, and the beautiful. Um, yeah. Well, it's all the high without the substance. Yeah, and, right. yeah exactly, exactly. Um, well, Jessica, let's dive into like maybe one chapter of your book. Um, uh, and maybe maybe just let me know which one is your favorite and we can talk through it a little bit. Um, but obviously, we're not going to reveal too much of the book because my listeners definitely should buy this for themselves. But in general, the structure starts with a starts with some sort of a, a relevant quote. Um, and then e- each chapter that is, and then you dive into the work of one author. Uh, in, in particular, normally, it's one story, or at least one sort of arc of stories. Um, and you weave in other uh, other insights from other authors, of course, throughout. But you dive in and, and basically examine each story from different angles, through different lenses, um, and look at how that story prompts us to holiness, um, using, driving forward your main thesis that literature is one of the main tools that we can, um, we can sort of look for and um, desire holiness. And then at the end, um, you, you wrap it up with a nice conclusion, of course, and then there's, there's a devotional that has you know, perhaps a couple quotes, um, a key reference or two from scripture, and then some wisdom, uh, wisdom from the saints, um, and then a prayer, and then discussion questions. So, by the way, this is a great book to do as a group. This would be, I think, a really fantastic, fun exercise to read with friends for several weeks in a row and um, go through these stories together. And I think you could. I mean, uh, sorry, I'm going to give the mic back to you, Jessica. But real quick, if you're doing that, I would highly recommend like spacing it out over time and doing something like a chapter a month, um, giving yourselves also time to read through the stories that Jessica is pointing you to, because that will certainly take some time. Um, but, but Jessica, first of all, what did I miss in the sort of structure of each chapter? And then mm-hmm. let's dive into one together. Yeah. And the, the other piece is I have icons by Kelly Lattimore and, uh, who's an artist and he, um, really they're icons of non-canonical saints, which I think is important. But for me, I wanted to reach out and showcase my belief that I said earlier, that it's not just literature that can frame your imagination. It's, it's art, it's music, which of course I can't include them in the book. Um, it's nature, which I do speak to in the book. Uh, and it's architecture. Like you mentioned, there's just a lot of ways that our imagination can be cultivated, but literature should be a part of that. It is designed, I hope for like a Sunday school class where you would read these novels and you would read my chapter with the novel you would have a discussion as a group. You would start with prayer for the for Sunday school. It's it's supposed to be that kind of, of text or a book club or something. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. And by the way, your your mention of icons reminds me it, back to the conversation we were just having about pornography. I've heard mm-hmm. Matt Fred, I think, talk with Jonathan Pago. I think it was Pago oh, about yeah. pornography as the anti icon mm-hmm. because the icon is something physical that points us directly to something deeper. And pornography is the opposite. It's, it's physical, but wants us to sort of just remain at the physical carnal level 
and forget that there is anything transcendent at all. Um, so anyway, yeah, really, I think a really interesting conversation that we don't have time for today, but wanted to <laughs> wanted to point that out. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. Well, and the way that I structured the book, like I really can't pick a favorite chapter. Um, but for me, as I was writing it, what I started realizing is when you dig into one part of a saint, like if you re- dig into one person, you know, if you look at the Unset chapter and you just dig into this woman who through her life of being a virgin and then a mother, right, and then a whole, you know, a holy lay person, um, she also reveals what it means to die well. She also reveals asceticism. She also reveals contemplative life. You know, it it was almost impossible as I was writing the piece to realize like when Christ starts taking over parts of your life, he takes over all of it. You know, it's almost it's almost a difficult task to unthread uh, what he's weaving together. Great. Well, I know you said you have trouble picking a favorite. So can I pick one uh, for us to sure. dive into? Okay, yeah. let's see. Um, I'm going to read, read a couple of the chapters, titles out loud. Communion of Saints, Creation Care as a Holy Calling, Liberating Prophets, Virgin Bride Mother, and Contemplative and Active Life. I think it was these two that I really appreciated. Um, the last two that I read. Let, let's do the Contemplative and Active Life because... Yeah. Uh, the Diary of a Country Priest by George Bernanos is one of my favorite books of all time. Mm. Um, and this is definitely one, though, that I, uh, as I was reading, my my crass literary sensibilities, Jessica, uh, almost tempted me, or did tempt me, but did not successfully get me to stop reading the book because it's it's rather slow. And uh, as you point out, it, it feels like a monologue the entire time. Uh, yep. On a deeper level, also, as you point out, it's really a dialogue in which he sort of is, is in conversation with the soul of his reader. Um, mm-hmm. But tell us what's going on in the Diary of a Country Priest. Yeah, those who like Gilead would love the Diary of a Country Priest, which is mentioned twice in Gilead, right? It's one of um, John Ames's favorite books. And so Marilyn Robinson is kind of making a tribute to the Diary of a Country Priest. But it also means that it has kind of that slow feel that Gilead has, it is trying to move you towards contemplation. And of course, contemplation would be eventually it's going to be where you see God face to face, right? Where you're able to contemplate that. Um, in this life, you're always moving towards those points in time where you get a, a sense of that, a way of re-seeing where you are and seeing God at work where you are. And that's not a vision we can keep all the time because we're mortal and human and Um, But it's a vision we're always trying to attain to. So the metaphor that's used is Jacob's ladder, that you're always going up and down the ladder, right? Just like the angels ascending and descending. And so this priest is actually, you're you're watching him go through that process. And that's why it can be difficult for readers, because it's just like, uh, you know, two steps forward, one step back is what it feels like when he's like ascending and descending the ladder. You're like, oh, can't you get ahead in life? Like. (laughs) Totally. <laughs> you know, we're so used to stories having this progress or this forward momentum, whereas all the movement in the story is this one man not really getting anywhere, but his soul is going up and down the ladder as he starts seeing his reality more and more the way God sees it. Beautifully put. Um, yeah, the ladder, the la- the ladder analogy was not one that I had in my mind while I was reading it, but obviously, you know, you having. Um, having pointed it out, makes it a lot more clear to me in that way. Um, what do you make of the, uh, the sort of oppositional character in it? We can, we can probably call him the curé, who has a lot of these dialogues with the priest. Of course, we only get the monologue side from the priest's diary, but 
Um, you know, what do we learn from him in examining this life of the simple country priest? Yeah, you know, he's meant to be this foil of the active life. And it's a, a misunderstanding that I think the novel overcomes that the reader probably has between the active and the contemplative, because we're so raised on, you know, Leah versus Rachel and um, Martha versus Mary. And so we we come to the narrative with that in mind, I think. And, and so the curé is all the active, but when the active is so separated from the contemplative in this sense, the contemplative looks irrelevant and useless and the active looks like it's winning, but for what reason? I mean, how much good is it actually doing without being centered in prayer with, you know, without having its telos be to see God face to face. And so he's a great, he's a great foil in that way, um, because he makes the other character come more to life, right? We, we get to see there's a vitality in the priest that we may have missed because we were so convinced that what the priest said about himself was true, right? That the priest really is a loser and that the priest really is, um, should be despairing because he's not being effective in his community. And then when we see him in opposition to the really loud, um, active curé, you're like, oh, wait, mm, something's off. This guy might be onto something. Maybe the priest is doing more than we've seen. And um, maybe the curé is helping us realize that because of his foil. Yeah, I'm not going to name any names, but uh, in our previous diocese, uh, when I was reading this book, uh, I had in mind a certain priest of the diocese who is, you know, not sort of not, not high up on the, on the sort of ecclesial power structure at all. Um, but is very intent on doing the things that are right in front of him. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought in, in, in the same way that this, this priest is doing it, um, this priest that I knew in the diocese was just a very, very holy priest, just trying to go about and simply do the will of God as he's going, not, not, not looking for the sort of um, the active life that the cure uh, exemplifies or typifies, not trying to hobnob with the the rich donors and patrons and benefactors of the diocese, but um, rather just simply um, saying mass faithfully and uh, being a pastor. Uh, and I think I think that is really um, one of the lessons of the book. the uh, The other thing I was going to ask you about is what does this tell us about like the the value of of hiddenness? You know, the the cure obviously is is higher up the ecclesial ladder than the simple country priest who has a very small parish. Um, and even in the the priest's, I think, most profound um, interaction in the book, and you'll have to read the book to know what I'm talking about, but I'm sure you do, Jessica, the most mm-hmm. profound sort of extended conversation in the book is one that um, that happens in such a way that the priest can't really even talk about it. So, yeah. so even that um, ends up sort of falling to this hiddenness, and, and the priest has to be content with that. So what, what do we learn about the value of hiddenness from the book? Yeah, you know, as I'm hearing you talk about it, there's a certain sense in which the more time you spend in contemplation, there's an authenticity that comes about in the character, right? So it's not only that you're able to see God more, you're able to understand yourself in relation to God more, which I think is what happens in that fateful scene is that the priest, you know, has been trained by the cure to be effective and he, you know, he wants to do good in the community. But in that particular scene, he lets go and he calls himself you know, I'm no more than the poker that you hold in your hand. I'm an instrument in the hand of God. And it's a real understanding of who he is and authenticity that we haven't seen in him before. When I read that scene, I think who does not want that? Who does not want to be able yes. to be completely self-effacing yes. and just be an instrument in God's hand? 
I could, yeah, I could not agree with you more. That is the, that's the goal of the Christian life. Yeah. Well, and for me to say that literature takes you there might sound like a really strange claim, but there is something that I do believe is efficacious about reading literature in that it allows us to remove ourselves from the center of the universe when we're reading it. Because when you're reading the diary of a country priest, you care about the priest more than you care about yourself during the time you're reading it. Right. Yes. And so there's a letting go and um, a receptivity that is happening that kind of is a practice for the life of prayer. And too often, I think our prayer lives turn into asking and demanding and hearing ourselves talk, but literature we practice listening, we practice lowering ourselves, we practice hearing about other people, and I think it practices for hearing from God. On this point, I hadn't planned on asking you this, but since since we are sort of here, on this point about emulation, mm-hmm. what do you yeah. think about um, the concepts of heroism in great literature compared mm-hmm. to what what we see in you know marvel movies today like our the, the way the he- the way heroes are presented in modern literature or modern art modern cinema um compared to the heroes of great literature what would you say about you know c- comparing and contrasting those two things and how the um how the latter i think the latter is the good one right that i think i said that second um how the great literature heroes are better than our sort yeah. of modern ideas of heroes Well, I think about this in terms of my kids where I can see it most clearly, but if it's true for children, then it must still be true for me. And that is indicting. I have to think, so I have to think about what it is that I'm watching if I think this is true about kids. But I remember when I first had my daughter and so she was newborn, wasn't watching anything. And I met with someone who's older who had a three-year-old girl and she wasn't letting her watch any Disney movies with princesses. And I thought, well, that's extreme. Like, (laughs) why would anyone do that? (laughs) Um, And so I let my daughter watch all these little Disney princess movies that I grew up with, not thinking anything of it. And then she's, you know, four or five years old with her brother. And all she is thinking about is getting married and dancing with him. And, you know, the little feminist in me is like, wait, what? (laughs) Don't you want something higher? Like, let's buy this book about saints. Like, don't you want to be like Brigitte of Sweden or like Catherine Sienna? Julia (laughs) Norwich, yeah. Right. Like, how do I get you to want something higher? And not that marriage won't be a part of that, but like, I don't want you to want to settle what on just what the culture teaches you to desire. And it was, it was a life-changing moment for me to kind of think through how do I train my daughter, not just with what I say and with what I do, but with everything she's reading and seeing that she wants what God wants. Because we spend a lot of time in church, but apparently it's not enough to counteract the Disney movies she was watching or the books that she was reading. And so I I think about that in terms of the movies that I watch. How much is watching Marvel movies teaching me that my desire should be about being strong and my desire should be about winning and my desire should be about overcoming or my side, you know, being the victors? Uh, Because that's not what my church says that's not what the bible says and if i'm if i'm reading those stories are those the heroes that i'm implicitly taking in to my storehouse of, in my memory without even realizing it like are my desires being shaped in a way again that i'm not it's not cognitive but it's just there yeah two things uh that came to mind when you were talking about that is one it is difficult especially having children to understand just all the very subtle ways in which your children are informed by these things that they see around them everywhere the stories they read the movies they watch the whatever the music they listen to 
and the same as you were as you were saying the same goes for us right it's 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 so subtle uh the mm-hmm. second thing is yeah i i totally take your point uh we like sally and i don't want our daughters just dancing around wanting to be disney princesses because that is a goal totally devoid of god there's no god in the disney universe um mm-hmm. at the same time like we don't want them to watch uh i don't know what's one of the latest like um just take life by the horns and uh be a feminist and, right. and reject yeah and, like yeah. reject every convention uh that comes yeah. before you because that's also not a gospel-centered message right. and so yeah you're absolutely right like how how do we um how do we construct this moral universe this imaginative universe for our children mm-hmm. that includes uh that, that takes takes the good things from there there are good things uh, obviously about marriage there are good things about rejecting some conventions and being brave you know uh look at joan of arc obviously who, who is yeah. mentioned in your book like there are really good things there how do we take those take the best mm-hmm. elements of those and um and sort of in, in a in a catholic sort of way in culture and i know i know you're not catholic uh enculturate them right um and make them our own. So that is a really, it's a really challenging task as a parent. Maybe uh, as a final question for you, Jessica, um, you know, how do you do that? I mean, that's a, that's like, that's a, that's a book that you could write. Maybe that's your next book, but uh, you know, what are some thoughts you have for parents on how to do that? You know, what's so funny that actually my, my book isn't finalized yet. Cause it'll take four or five years, but um, Dana Joya, I recently was having breakfast with him and he, um, he gave me the title of my book, which I think is helpful for this conversation. Um, I was talking about wanting to write on women. And of course I wrote on, on Kristen Lovren's daughter and here's the picture of motherhood is beautiful, but it's beautiful because it ends in God. Like the yeah. whole, like everything is directed towards God. Right. Um, it's not in and of herself as a mother that is a fulfillment. It's the fulfillment because she's doing something for the Lord. <laughs> like, I don't know how to phrase that right now, but this is what I'm trying to work on is this idea of like, what is culture reducing that makes certain things like motherhood, which are beautiful, unpalatable because they're misdirected or they're seen as the ends and not the means towards loving mm. God. And, um, and Dana said, you know, well, women have always had to be twice rebels, both rebels in the church to stand up for what it means to be a Christian woman, first and foremost, but then also rebels in the culture to say, I'm not going to full throttle embrace what you're saying a woman is right. And in since they're having to rebel against two different sides to find out what it means to be a Christian, right. Because they're reduced from two different Mm -hmm. sides. Um, and I think that's the difficulty with parenting is as you're raising your kids, there's this nuanced middle way that is so hard to continually find because you're rejecting these extremes. And the minute you reject an extreme, someone assumes you're on the other extreme. They assume you're on a completely different side. Um, and so I think literature, what you said earlier about peeling back the onion or it having different, different layers, literature gives us more and more confidence in the mystery in the middle way, in the nuanced, layered perspective. Uh, And I think it gives us room for us to parent there, to be friends there, um, and for our children to see the world that way, that things are not extremes, things are not um, dichotomous, they're not either or. There's a lot more mystery involved in in the ways that we live. I love it. Wise words, Jessica. Uh, Thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. Really appreciated our conversation. Uh, so my listeners should go pick up the scandal of holiness, renewing your imagination in the company of literary saints. 
Uh, where can they get the book? Uh, you know, which we try to not do Amazon, uh, Jessica. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's the I turn everyone to Eighth Day Books. Eight. Eighth Day Books is my favorite bookstore, and they are do a great job about carrying my stuff. Awesome. All right, we will do that. I'm going to include a link to Jessica's book via Eighth Day Books. Uh, and then finally, Jessica, where can people follow you and follow your work? So I have a website and I'm actually, I just hired a web manager so it'll have a lot more of the up-to-date content Exciting. over the next year because I haven't been great about keeping up with that. Um, I prefer the contemplative life, you know? It makes it really hard <laughs> to keep up with the website. <laughs> so, uh, and also at Hooten Wilson on Twitter. I would love to have conversations with people. So. Great, sounds good. So you heard her, follow her on Twitter at Hooten Wilson. She loves to have conversations there. If you have any feedback for me on this episode, send me a note, Zach at creedlepodcast.com. Thank you once again, Jessica. Thanks so much, Jack. And to my listeners, God bless you.